Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Georgia has developed a habit of asking us at the dinner table to list our blessings, which is annoying when you've had a rotten day, but uh, usually she asks, what was the highlight of your day? And she seems to ask it and prefer asking it on days when it seems like we are all in a lousy mood, and that's just her, her way. It's good. It's good for us. And, and we kind of go around the table and we list our favorite things that happened, and it can be something major or something quite small, more, more typically. Usually it's small. Uh, our days aren't typically full of earth-shattering events, let's be honest. Uh, and of course, the most common thing people express gratitude for is the meal that we're here for, right? If not this dinner, then something else we ate earlier in the day. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think that every highlight in our lives involves eating something. <laughs> that may, in fact, be accurate. Um, but Carol, our, our, our guest from Spain, she suggested a new rule that we only list non-meal-related items. Because as she observed, not that they're not important, but that meals should be considered a given, is her way of thinking. And, and of course, you know, meals are a highlight, but you should have to dig deeper. I thought it was a good point. I like her thinking, because it forces you to reflect a bit. But I also think she's right to say that meals are almost always the highlight of our day. 
I have one child who I need not name who thanks God every night for her yummy dinner, and this formula applies even when she didn't like it or finish it. <laughs> so, of course, meals are the highlight. We punctuate our days with meals. Some people eat three square meals. Others, like us, tend to be more like hobbits. We eat all day. We have breakfast and second breakfast and elevensies and luncheon and tea and dinner and supper. Georgia and I consider midnight cheese to be a legitimate meal. That's a thing for us. But some meals, naturally, are more special than others, either because of specific foods that you serve or because of the company that you eat it with, right? Uh, for instance, you know, it applies even if it's an event you don't care about. Georgia hates football, but every year she looks forward to what she calls Super Bowl food because, you know, tis the season for buffalo chicken dip and that kind of thing, right? Uh, I have a sister-in-law who waits all year for pumpkin spice season at Wawa. You know, we all have something. And I think every holiday meal is special. Certain foods that we set aside for certain holidays, and we look forward to them all year because it might be the only time we eat them. And we like those traditions to remain steady. And that's what Passover was for Jesus. And sometimes I think we forget that this meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples was, was not unique to this room in, in this group. Right? The entire city is full of people who are doing the exact same things in every house, every hotel, and every restaurant in Jerusalem. Almost everyone would have the night off. The streets would be empty. It would be like on Christmas Eve. Right? Everyone would be eating this meal somewhere with, with people that they love. And unlike the original Passover, this event was a purely joyous occasion. It was surrounded with traditions and family memories. Right? Uh, this was an annual party that Jesus would have celebrated for over 30 years now. He would have gone with Joseph and Mary until Joseph died to Jerusalem to celebrate this, and then maybe after that he would have led the service at home in Joseph's stead. He was the eldest son. Uh, he would have eaten the same foods that they ate years after years, and, and he would remember the places that they stayed. Uh, it's entirely possible that he chose this particular room, this, this hotel, because he knew it already. Uh, this might be a place his parents used to rent out. It's entirely possible, uh, well, yeah, sorry, I'm getting lost here. <laughs> Jesus knew this city inside and out is my point. Uh, this was a place he had celebrated every major holiday, right, three times a year, as we uh, discussed on Sunday, and you get to know a place pretty well at that point. I would say Jesus probably knew Jerusalem better than I know Cape May or Locust Lake. And when you get to know a place that well, you get attached to certain traditions that are also associated with the place. George has been doing research the last few weeks on Messianic seders, and, and it sure seems like the format of the Passover celebration hasn't changed all that much in several thousand years. It's a very familiar liturgy, and it's typically led by the family. And 30 years for Jesus, that's long enough to develop some family traditions and to get attached to them. Jesus would have watched Joseph and Mary performing this ritual every year, and he would know the words by heart, and since I believe that nostalgia is a human trait, Jesus, as a true man, I think these memories would have been fond ones for him. Now, I can relate. I, I, I love holiday traditions. I, I'm sort of the tradition keeper in our house. I always feel like the holiday is slightly ruined if we skip any steps, you know, so we keep traditions wherever we can. And we also try to avoid adding any new traditions if we can, because that just makes things harder. Uh, I like my holidays to be utterly predictable. 
And of course, that's not actually possible, but I don't know any child who doesn't want traditions and want things to be steady. And I can't imagine Jesus not being in a similar fix. He's the eldest child, right? He's a rule follower, you'd think. He, 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 he knew how things ought to be. His memory of this holiday would have run much deeper than his younger siblings, right? But this year, this Passover, things aren't going so great. Uh, Jesus' fond memories of celebrating Passover with his folks, that's all kind of long gone. Joseph is dead by now. Uh, his siblings are grown. Everybody's out of the house. and Plus, the holiday had gone completely commercial. It's just like Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? It, it, that's a big part of why he caused a scene at the temple on Monday, right? And now it's Thursday, and he seemingly has calmed down a little bit since then, and here he's going to celebrate this holiday with his friends. And it's not quite like being with his parents, but at least he's with friends. I mean, how many Christmas movies are about not being alone on the holiday, right? Jesus doesn't have that problem. He's got a whole crew of guys with him, and they're not technically family, but they're close enough. They've been through a lot together. So he's been looking forward to this meal. And, and all that's to say that I, I want us to understand that this was a joyous occasion. And, and I think we in the church often make the mistake of thinking of Passover as a somber occasion. And that's largely because we only tend to remember two specific occasions in Scripture when it was celebrated, we, and both of which were pretty heavy and had serious stuff going on. We think of the first time it happened when all of the firstborn of Egypt were getting killed, and then we think of this time where the specter of Jesus' impending death kind of colors our view of it a little bit too. Uh, but this was not true of Passover feasts in general. To this day, it's celebrated by Jews and Messianic Jews as well as a, as a celebration. It's a feast. It's a party. And that's what we're commemorating. Uh, I think, you know, this isn't originally our holiday, maybe. Maybe that adds to our confusion. But this is not supposed to be a downer, is my point. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be a downer for Jesus. For Jesus, this was one last chance for him to do something fun with the people that he loves, to enjoy a celebration that he loved with all the traditions that he loved and had kept from childhood, and just as they had as well. But there's one thing and one issue, one person who could ruin this holiday, and he's sitting right near Jesus. There's an unwelcome guest at the party. Someone who wasn't invited, and that could ruin any family party, especially if the uninvited guest is someone you hate. And I don't mean Judas, I mean the one who's in Judas and controlling him. John records here in verse 2 that Satan had already put the idea of betrayal into Judas's mind. But in verse 27, John says that Satan entered him right there as they were eating. Now, Luke's account, he records that Satan entered Judas earlier in the week. But what is clearly true is that Jesus and his 12 friends are not the only people in this room. There's an unwelcome presence here. And it's the same presence that had tormented and tested Jesus in the wilderness. It's the same enemy who had created the mess that Jesus was here to fix. It's the same enemy who had corrupted the temple and the entire nation, and he was not satisfied to leave Jesus alone at a private party. He's sitting here in this room the whole time, smirking at Jesus from a corner. And in verse 11, it's clear that Jesus knows exactly how this whole thing is going to go sideways very soon. His last hurrah here is, is haunted in a sense. It's, 
It's like the final meal in prison before your execution, but imagine eating that final meal while the hangman is sitting there like laughing at you. I, I think Jesus could be forgiven for having no appetite at this party. Granted, none of the other disciples realized what was happening. They're still having fun. Once again, this is a feast. It's a party. They're all laughing and yucking it up and stuffing their faces and thinking how after a rough start to the week, everything seems to be evening out at this point. But for Jesus, I read this passage and wonder how he got through the meal at all. How do you enjoy this holiday with your enemy at your elbow? And in fact... As the evening goes on, Jesus does eventually let on that something is really bothering him. In verse 21, he lets the cat out of the bag, says, one of you are going to betray me. But John says that Jesus was only troubled that way after the foot washing and after about half of the meal was already eaten. And that led to me, for me, to a real puzzler, and that's that Jesus must have washed Judas's feet. I had never thought about that before, really. And here Judas is sharing the Passover meal with Jesus. They're eating from the same bowl. Middle Eastern food is like that. Uh, when I went to Israel as a teenager, I, I remember we visited an Arabic restaurant in Israel. It was my favorite meal on the trip. Honestly, I wasn't that impressed with Israeli food. Uh, but this was good. They had like a half a dozen common bowls, and everybody has bread for dipping, right? So it's family style. It's a very intimate way of eating, and that's what this was like. And Jesus is sitting close enough to Judas to be dipping bread for him and handing it to him, dripping, you know? Close. How does Jesus get through this meal? I don't come here with brilliant answers to those questions. Uh, honestly, I'm not sure why Jesus washed Judas's feet. He could have sent him out earlier. But he waited. I can't explain that theologically or psychologically. But I have several takeaways. And one is that not all who are washed and eat from this table are part of the fold. There can be wolves among the flock. Because if this was true of Jesus' best friends, it's certainly not less true of any church today. Uh, God's people have always had fakers in their midst. But I also take from this scene that the impurity and imperfections of the church do not invalidate the church or make what we're doing meaningless. The presence of Judas did not negate the presence of Christ, and the presence of fakers today doesn't negate the presence of the Holy Spirit with us now. God's power and God's presence is not contingent on the purity of his people. But I think this scene also demonstrates something else. Every week, when we come to the Lord's table, we talk about eating worthily from it. And we get that language from the Apostle Paul. But it can seem kind of vague and esoteric. None of us are worthy of this meal. All of us come to worship flawed and with unresolved issues somewhere and some sort of sin, right? How can any of us eat worthily? And I know it's a common thing for believers to wonder if they're holy enough to take communion in a given week. Some Christians even abstain on a given week if they feel like they're having a bad week. I don't think that's the point. Uh, the ones who approach the table worthily are those who know how unworthy they are but have trusted Jesus. But this scene gives us a clear picture of what unworthy eating looks like. And in fact, 
Perhaps the most haunting vision is found in verse 27 because it's when Jesus hands Judas the morsel that John reports that that's when Satan entered him. I mean, talk about eating and drinking judgment on yourself. It's a freaky scene. I once heard Ligon Duncan, he's a PCA pastor, he gave a really cool illustration of the idea that Jesus at this meal is reversing part of the curse of Eden and, and part of what he illustrates with it. He says, you know, in Genesis 3, we're told that Eve saw the fruit was good and so she took and she ate and, and mankind was plunged into darkness, but that Jesus at the Last Supper is redeeming that phrase, take and eat. He makes those words into something life-giving. It's a cool illustration and it's true, but those who don't know Christ and who've rejected him or think they don't need him, they, they can eat and drink this meal but it only serves to condemn them, and that's what Paul is warning against. This table is life-giving, but it's also dangerous to unbelievers and to the unrepentant. I can't measure that danger, but Jesus sees the heart. So the church has always had wolves in its midst, and at the same time, Jesus has always been with us, and the posers and fakers are only making their judgment heavier every week as they reject the word of God, even as they're hearing it. Now, I could stop there, and this message would be kind of dismal, but that's my takeaways, right? Jesus has his own takeaway from this supper, and I think it's only fair that we give him the last word. Verse 31 to 35. It says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I like those last couple verses. That's how we started the service. I think it's fitting that we close with it. What Jesus is sending us home with as he sent his disciples home is not that we should obsess over the wolves and worry. His main takeaways from this dinner are that he is glorified and we should love each other. If I'm honest, I don't see how that could be the main takeaway after this meal. I would expect Jesus to be warning us to be on the lookout for the posers and the fakers. But instead, he talks about God's glory and tells them to focus on loving each other. And I like that because it sort of echoed our passage on Sunday. Jesus made that scene at the temple, and his takeaway was pray, have faith, forgive each other. And now he just got done essentially condemning Jesus. He hands him over to Satan in that scene. And his takeaway to the remaining 11 is, go love the heck out of each other. It doesn't seem like the expected conclusion, but Jesus often does the unexpected, doesn't he? In the end, once again, the disciples are in ignorance. Ignorance is a theme throughout these passages, it seems. They, there's so many things they don't know. I think they actually had a pretty nice party overall. They don't realize how long this night is going to be. Things are about to get ugly. 
But I say all that as a preface to saying that our goal tonight is not to be sad. Tonight, we feast. We eat the Passover, and we eat the Passover with the Passover lamb himself. Georgia, in her wanderings and looking up things about these messianic satyrs, she's been looking up Jewish Passover songs, and her favorite is the Dayenu, which I was just looking up downstairs. It's like a thousand years old they've been singing it, but it translates out of the Hebrew to it would have been enough. Gwen's been singing it all week, but, you know, the, the refrain is that, you know, it would have been enough that you took us out of Egypt. It would have been enough that you gave us the riches uh, on the way out. It would have been enough that you fed us in the wilderness. It would have been enough to see the promised land. It all would have been enough. And God gave us Jesus to deliver us from sin and death. We have something so much better. So Jesus ultimately doesn't let Satan ruin the holiday. He served the meal. He washed his people, even though one of them was an opposer and a hypocrite. And in the end, he is glorified, and the Father is glorified, and he has loved his people well. So it was a good Passover after all. And for us, since we know the end of the story, we don't need to be burdened the way Jesus was that night. Jesus isn't dead anymore, and the enemy is bound. Sin and death are working backwards. This Passover meal is a joyous occasion. This is a feast, and we celebrate not only the promise that was hidden within the original Passover, we celebrate the deliverance that it pointed to. So don't be somber. Save that for Reverend Green tomorrow night. For tonight, eat hearty. Let's love each other well and glorify Christ in the process. And as Jesus said, that's how people will know that we belong to him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as your people, Lord, and to celebrate and partake of this feast. Lord, we thank you that we are not, it is not restricted to us remembering what you did for your people when you delivered them from Egypt all those many years ago. Lord, we are here celebrating the ultimate deliverance. And Lord, we do know how the story ends. We try to remember these stages and the various steps that led to it, but Lord, we already know how the story ends. We know that Sunday is coming and has indeed already come. So Lord, help us to feast. Help us to be joyful. And Lord, help us, teach us to love one another. That the world would see and that they would know you and that they would see you by our love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all bless.